In the busy cities of Galatia, a theological storm was brewing, a confrontation not of swords, but of sacred convictions that struck at the heart of early Christian identity. Apostle Paul, a master builder of churches and a zealous guardian of the gospel truth, found himself in a fierce dispute that threatened to untangle the very fabric of the faith he held dear. As we turn to Galatians 6, 11, 18, we are taken into the inner room of a spiritual battleground where Paul mounts an unyielding defense against a faction disguised in piety, the Judaizers. These were false teachers who infiltrated the community, flaunting the scalpel of circumcision as a necessity for salvation, binding Gentile believers to the yoke of the Jewish law. In the midst of the chaos emerges a central theme, the transformative power of the cross of Christ, mighty to pull down the stronghold of legalism and powerful to usher in the liberating reign of grace. Paul contends that salvation is the exclusive province of divine grace, accessible through faith in Christ alone, released from the ceremonial shackles of Mosaic law observance. This is not a trifling theological sparring, but Paul's heartfelt plea, a clarion call resounding with the eternal weight of souls wobbling on the cliff of truth and apostasy. The gravity of Paul's message is made manifest in his deviation from conventional epistolary practices. He breaks from the norm of dictation to scribes, taking the quill into his scarred, apostolic hands, inscribing with large letters the fervency of his appeal. Here the large typography serves not only as a visual amplification of his earnestness, but also as the means of his personal touch, a paternal pat upon the troubled forehead of a faltering child. Thus we are summoned to heed the urgency of his words, for intertwined within the sinews of the text lies the very essence of Christian freedom and the well-known Pauline doctrine, justification by faith, the law's fulfillment in love and life in the Spirit, that constitutes the bedrock of our faith. As we delve into the Scripture, let us journey alongside Paul to reclaim the purity of the Gospel of Christ, that in this epistle to the Galatians we find both a timeless anchor for our souls and a light tower that guides us back to the heart of our Christian calling, where in the shadow of the cross we stand in awe, redeemed and reborn. After we acknowledge the conflict between the gospel of grace and legalistic teachings, we now dive into the last section of Galatians, where Paul summarizes his core arguments, distinguishing his gospel from the distorted message of his adversaries with marked clarity and intensity. Galatians 6, 11, 18 reads as follows, See with what large letters I have written to you with my own hand. All who want to make a good showing in the flesh try to compel you to be circumcised, simply so that they will not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For those who are circumcised do not even keep the law themselves, but they want to have you circumcised so that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither is circumcision anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And all who will follow this rule, peace and mercy be upon them, and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause trouble for me, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers and sisters. Amen.
Now we are going to dissect the richness of his closing statements, uncovering the essence of his defense of the gospel against Judaic legalism and his exposition of Christian liberty in Christ's redemptive work. The central message of Galatians is the supremacy of the cross of Christ over the Jewish law. It emphasizes that true Christian identity and salvation come not from law observance but through the crucifixion of Christ, which heralds in a new creation marked by transformation, freedom, and life in the Spirit. First of all, in Galatians 6.11, we encounter a peculiar detail that draws our attention not only to the content of Paul's message, but also to the manner in which it is delivered. Paul, taking the quill in hand, declares, See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. This is no insignificant remark. It is a deliberate and emphatic mark of Paul's direct involvement in writing to the Galatians, a stylistic departure from his typical practice that deserves our careful consideration. Paul, a learned man and a former Pharisee, would have been well-versed in the Jewish Tanakh as well as familiar with Greco-Roman rhetorical techniques of his day. Typically, he would have used the services of an amanuensis, a common practice in the ancient world, to pen the body of his epistles. This reflects not only literacy protocols, but also the practical dynamics of letter-writing, which was a laborious task. The statement about large letters, therefore, reflects a break from Paul's norm. It is as if we can see him, possibly hunched over a piece of parchment, scrupulously forming each character with a toil and love that betrays the weight of his words. The large letters serving as visual exclamation points, underlining the gravity of his final exhortations. Moreover, the phrase, with my own hand, suggests both authenticity and autonomy. In the broader context of the epistle which wrestles with themes of spiritual freedom and the threat of legalism, Paul's personal touch is a testament to the liberating power of the gospel he preaches. The large letters accentuate the urgency of the hour. The spiritual well-being of the Galatian church hangs precariously in the balance as they are confronted with false teachings urging a regression towards the law. It is as if Paul knows his words must carry the weight of apostolic authority, ensuring that his teachings on freedom in Christ and justification by faith alone are vividly seen and cannot be misunderstood or forgotten. Furthermore, the sizable script can be viewed as a mark of sincerity and vulnerability. In Galatians 4.13-14, Paul alludes to a physical ailment, a thorn in the flesh, and in this light the large letters resonate as a visual echo of his infirmity. They become symbolic of his pastoral heart, willing to bear any physical discomfort to communicate directly with his flock. There is intimacy in this gesture. The reader can almost sense the presence of Paul behind each word, grasping Paul's earnest desire for the Galatians to grasp the full measure and freedom of the truth he presents. In addition, theologically, this verse asserts the primacy and clarity of the gospel message. It signals us to consider the lengths to which Paul goes to safeguard the purity of the gospel against confusion and false teaching. When the integrity of the gospel is at stake, Paul spares no effort, using unusual means, a shift from the hand of a scribe to the bold scribble of an apostle, 
to secure his message. As a result, learning from Paul's example, we must be vigilant in discerning the truth from error. In an age of competing voices and ideologies, clarity and boldness in gospel proclamation remain paramount. We too are called to steward the truth with earnestness, ensuring that the essential message of Christ crucified and risen is not lost amid the uproar of false religious noise. Consider a skilled craftsman who typically delegates tasks to his apprentices, but decides to carve the finishing touches on a crucial masterpiece himself. His hands, though worn by time and labor, guide the chisel with a precision and fervor that convey the importance of his work. So too does Paul, an experienced apostle accustomed to the support of scribes, personally inscribe his concluding words to reinforce the gravity of his message. For us, this serves as an example to approach our witness of the gospel with the same meticulous care, ensuring its transformative power remains undiluted by our convictions and clarity. In essence, Paul's large letters in Galatians 6.11 reveal a intense commitment to the gospel's truth, highlighting the necessity of direct and unambiguous communication in matters of faith. Like the craftsman's final strokes, Paul's deliberate inscription asks us to affirm the gospel message with clarity and devotion in every aspect of our lives. Besides, in Galatians 6.12.13, Paul exposes the misguided intentions of certain individuals within the early Christian community, referred to as the Judaizers, who were promoting circumcision as an essential practice for Gentile believers. This group was imposing not merely a physical rite, but also an entire system of legalistic observance of the Jewish law upon Gentile converts. Their insistence on circumcision was portrayed as a righteous endeavor. However, Paul reveals a starkly different motivation, a concern for self-presentation and self-preservation rather than genuine spiritual commitment or concern for the Gentiles' salvation. Paul states, As many as desire to make a good impression in the flesh, they compel you to be circumcised, only that they may not suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. Here, Paul diagnoses the Judaizers' zeal for circumcision as essentially driven by a desire to make a fair show, an attempt to enhance their standing and to boast about their law-keeping before their Jewish peers. Additionally, Paul reveals that, though they compel the Gentile Galatians to circumcision, they themselves do not keep the law diligently. Their selective adherence contradicts the claim that their motives are rooted in obedience to God. Instead, Paul condemns their hypocritical zeal as nothing more than an effort to uphold their reputation and standing in the midst of wider Jewish opposition to the message of the cross. Also, the cross of Christ is fundamental to Paul's message as it represents the culmination of salvation history and the focal point upon which the new covenant turns. To the Judaizers, however, the cross is a stumbling block, a symbol of shame and an emblem of a Messiah who does not fit their triumphant expectations. Their avoidance of persecution from respective Jewish communities is their overriding concern, which leads them to avoid the offensive but essential truth of the crucified Messiah. 
This avoidance is indicative of a reluctance to commit fully to the radical implications of the gospel that Paul preaches, the universal offer of salvation apart from the law. Moreover, Paul's argument comes to a piercing point when he indicates that such a position is not only heretical, but also grounded in cowardice and self-interest. The persecution he refers to likely arises from zealous factions within Judaism which saw the developing Christian faith's departure from traditional norms, especially the law, as heretical. The Judaizers' response to this threat of persecution is not to stand firm with the crucified Christ as Paul does, but to retreat into the familiarity of their former Judaism, which is now repudiated by the advent of the Messiah. Furthermore, the image that Paul paints in these verses is of a spiritual battleground where he alone stands on the side of the crucified Christ. His opponents are cast as mercenaries who fight for personal gain and safety rather than for the truth of the gospel. This portrayal is not one of mere doctrinal difference, but of a fundamental divergence in understanding the nature of the Christian faith. For Paul, the faith he embraces is one of transformation, a cruciform life that is marked by suffering, resilience and the hope of resurrection, a life that imitates the path walked by Christ himself. One can consider Paul as a seasoned and scarred warrior who returned from the battlefield with his shield rather than on it. His opponents, the Judaizers, were like soldiers who paraded around in spotless armor, never having faced the real fight, the persecution that comes from cleaving to the cross of Christ. They preferred to enjoy the admiration of the crowd from the safety of the sidelines, rather than joining Paul in the field of true spiritual conflict where allegiance to Christ was tested and proven through sacrifice and persecution. Paul's confrontation with the Judaizers challenges believers of all times to inspect the motives behind their religious practices. Are our religious actions rooted in the desire to impress others or to avoid conflict? Or are they a reflection of our commitment to Christ and His cross? In our contemporary setting, this translates into an examination of our church attendance, charitable works, and even our social media presentations of faith. Are they performed for outward recognition or from a heartfelt devotion to God? Paul's encounter with the Judaizers serves as a clarion call to believers to adopt authenticity in faith. It gestures to us to shun a superficial Christianity that prioritizes appearances and seeks human approval. Instead, we are to embrace a faith that upholds the transformative power of the cross, a faith that may invite persecution, but ultimately aligns us with the true nature and purpose of the Christian life as modeled by Paul. In addition, in Paul's touching conclusion to the Galatians, we find a declaration that purifies the essence of his contention with the Judaizers. He openly renounces any form of boasting, saving it exclusively for the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. The image of the cross in Paul's day was one marred by connotations of shame, cursedness and defeat. Yet for Paul it was a transcendent symbol that heralded a radical metamorphosis from the old covenantal shadows to the new covenant's brilliant dawn. The cross, an emblem of suffering and humiliation in Roman society, was astonishingly redefined by Paul as a ground for the believer's boasting. 
This boasting was not a trivial celebration of fleshly achievements or a testament to human efforts. Instead, it was a heartfelt assertion that the sacrificial act of Christ upon the cross was the axis upon which the entire narrative of salvation turned. The brutal execution device, paradoxically, became a light of glory and grace. Through the cross, a new creation has sprung forth, moving beyond the confines of the Mosaic law. The law's ceremonial demands, including the rite of circumcision, though once ordained by God to set his people apart, have now lost their binding force and salvific efficacy. They pale in the light of the cross's splendid truth, where neither circumcision nor uncircumcision carries weight. What counts is Cain Catesis, a new creation. Paul's understanding of a new creation reverberates throughout his epistles. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, he posits that if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. In the context of Galatians, this new creation is not an abstract theological concept, but a lived reality for the believer. It is inaugurated in the individual's life through the agency of the Holy Spirit, resulting in new birth, and it finds corporate expression in the body of Christ, the Church. In this new creation, ethnic divisions are dissolved, socio-economic statuses are transcended, the enmity of the law is abolished, all due to the reconciling work of Christ's cross. The implications are far-reaching, for it means that God's covenant people no longer are known by the flesh's markings, but by the Spirit's indwelling and regeneration. Paul's journey from a persecutor of Christians to an apostle of Christ is testament to the radical inner change that the cross brings. The transformative power of the cross is not limited to Paul or to a select few, but extends to all who call upon the name of Christ. The cross is the great leveler, erasing all grounds for fleshly boasting and ushering in a new era where grace reigns supreme. Therefore, this new creation serves as a call to embrace our identity in Christ fervently. This identity transcends all former religious, cultural, or societal labels we might have embraced or been ascribed. In Christ, we are new creatures, with our affections, allegiances, and aspirations dramatically realigned. Secondly, it invites a deep sense of humility into our Christian walk. The new creation status bestowed upon us is an unmerited favor. It is purely the result of Christ's vicarious triumph. As new creations, we realize that the spiritual pedigree we now enjoy is not a product of our righteousness. It is a gift of God. It disposes of our pride and roots our identity and purpose in God's grace, dispensed through the cross. Finally, being new creations in Christ equips us for works of service in this world. As ones who have been crucified to the world and to whom the world is crucified, we live with a distinctly Christ-focused perspective. Our changed natures bear fruit in keeping with repentance and renewal, demonstrating the reality of God's kingdom realized in us and through us. In sum, Paul's fervent assertion for glorying only in the cross reflects a theology deeply embedded in the transformative power of Jesus' redemptive work. The new creation in Christ is a pervasive theme, a reality into which believers are called to live out daily, marking a fundamental shift from fleshly ordinances to a spirit-endowed existence. 
It is a life characterized by the keen interior transformation worked by the cross and announced by the empty tomb. Further, Paul extends a benediction that summarizes the essence of the Christian faith, a faith marked by transformation and new life in Christ. He declares peace and mercy upon those who walk according to a profound new reality, which he defines as the new creation. These recipients are described as the Israel of God, a term that requires careful theological exploration to understand its place within the greater narrative of redemptive history. This phrase, the Israel of God, juxtaposed with the preceding condition of living by the rule of the new creation, invites us to consider the relationship between the church and Israel. Throughout church history, various interpretations have influenced theological perspectives on this relationship, often leading to contrasting views known as supersessionism or replacement theology and dispensationalism. Supersessionism posits that the church has replaced Israel as the people of God, inheriting the covenants and promises initially given to Israel. In contrast, dispensationalism maintains a clear distinction between the church and Israel, arguing that God has distinct and ongoing plans for each entity. In my affirmation of the distinction between the church and Israel, I regard the church as the collective body of Christ, which includes both Jews and Gentiles, united by faith in Jesus Christ. This body of Christ, while incorporating believers from all ethnic backgrounds, does not abolish or replace God's promises to ethnic Israel. Scripture illustrates that God has made particular and irrevocable covenants with the nation of Israel, covenants that carry both historical relevance and eschatological fulfillment. These promises encompass a future time of suffering, known as the Tribulation, and a subsequent time of restoration, when Israel will recognize and receive Jesus as their long-awaited Messiah. Therefore, the term the Israel of God in Galatians 6.16 requires nuanced understanding. It refers not to the church as the new Israel, but rather to Jewish believers who have recognized Jesus as the Messiah and have therefore become part of the true spiritual Israel, the remnant who abide in Christ. This interpretation aligns with scriptures that speak of a remnant within ethnic Israel, which by grace remains faithful to God's covenant through faith in the Messiah. As we anticipate a future where God's promises to Israel reach their culmination, Theologically framed within a pre-millennial and pre-tribulation eschatology, we also embrace the current era of the Church. The Church Age is characterized by a mystery once concealed but now revealed. Gentiles and Jews are fellow heirs, members of one body, and sharers in the promise in Christ Jesus through the Gospel. This unity, however, does not erase the distinctive future role of Israel, for God's faithfulness and promises to Israel persist. Prophecy speaks of a time when Israel will play a central role in the millennial kingdom, a thousand-year reign where Christ rules on earth with his resurrected saints. As a result, the distinction between the church and Israel reveals a multifaceted divine narrative where both entities are integral to God's sovereign plan. For the church, composed of both Jews and Gentiles, who are now one in Christ, Living as a new creation leads to embodying the virtues of the kingdom of God, demonstrating grace, peace, love, and unity. 
For Israel, the nation awaits a future where their long-standing hope is realized in the recognition of their Messiah, Jesus Christ, who shall bring to fulfillment the glorious promises made to the patriarchs. Besides, we must embrace our identity as part of the new creation. This encompasses a crucified life, crucified to the world and resurrected in Christ, a life that thrives under the regenerative work of the Spirit. Together, as one body, we uphold the Church's distinct role as the proclaimer of the Gospel in this age and support the unfolding of God's plans for Israel all of which mirror the depth of his faithfulness and the expanse of his redemptive love. As we conclude, let us hold firmly to the heart of this epistle, a life shaped not by external religious rites, but by the transformative encounter with Christ. We, the new creation, are called to embody the crucifixion's reality, breaking free from worldly bondage and living fully in the resurrected life of Christ. As a result, let us deeply implant within our hearts the cornerstone of Paul's epistle to the Galatians. The cross of Christ abolishes the need for external religious symbols such as circumcision, which once held significance under the Old Covenant. In this new era ushered by Christ's work on the cross, salvation is not achieved through ritualistic adherence to the Mosaic law, but through a complete grace of God that welcomes all into a transformative union with Christ. The general application for us as the body of Christ is an invitation to renounce any form of legalism that seeks justification outside of the cross and resurrection of Jesus. For it is on the cross that our debts stand cancelled and our chains broken, freeing us to live as the new creation Paul speaks of, a reality marked not by the works of the flesh but by the fruits of the Spirit. Individually, this message prompts introspection and a call to authenticity, as modern-day disciples, we must evaluate our adherence to traditions and practices, asking whether they reflect a genuine spiritual life or simply a form of godliness devoid of its power. We are each summoned to the foot of the cross where our true identity is found, where our personal stories intersect with the greatest story of redemption. Here at this cross, each believer whether Jew or Gentile, leader or layperson, is marked not by physical scars or ritualistic observances, but by a living faith that proclaims Christ crucified and resurrected. In the midst of theological debates and cultural traditions, let the cross remain our focal point and our only ground for boasting. For as Paul profoundly realized, it is only in being crucified with Christ and becoming a new creation that we truly experience the abundant life He promises and faithfully represent His kingdom here on earth.